Matthew 5, 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I have uh, two goals today. Uh, One is to introduce the Sermon on the Mount, and the second is to preach the Beatitudes. Uh, I couldn't decide whether to break that off into two sermons or one, so we're just going to preach double time and uh, and go that way. So uh, just so you know, heads up. Um, Let's pray together before we open the Word of God and hear what He has to say to us this morning. Father God, we thank You for Your love and Your grace. God, we thank You for the Sermon on the Mount, Your Word to us spoken by Jesus' lips, Lord, to see us thrive in Your kingdom on this earth. God, I pray that if there's anyone here Uh, that needs a heartbreaking, if anyone is here that needs a heart mending, if anyone's here that needs to be humbled, if anyone's here that needs to be exalted, Father, that your spirit will move uh, among the people and apply it uh, in the way that you see fit. God, we love you, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. As Christians, we live in a now and not yet reality. When Jesus came... He established his kingdom on earth. I don't think there's anyone that would deny that. You, you can see it clearly in the Gospels that when Jesus came, he established his kingdom on earth. And yet, his kingdom has not been fully completed. It hasn't come to full consummation yet. This means that while we are citizens of the kingdom now, according to the New Testament writers, we are still living as exiles, as strangers, as foreigners in a world oppressed by sin, Satan, and death. We are people who have our feet firmly in the kingdom, and yet we're still suffering, we're still going through tragedies, we're still going through deep mourning. It's difficult to imagine how one could live the abundant life that Jesus talks about in this world, isn't it? How could we possibly thrive in a place where people are gunned down for no apparent reason? where children are harmed, where racism exists, where our loved ones are lost? How can we flourish in a land that suffers from cancers and diseases of all sorts? Surely we can't thrive in a place where cancer still exists. How can we grow and bear fruit in a place as dry and as barren as this world is? Well, the good news for us is the Sermon on the Mount teaches us how we can thrive as kingdom citizens who still live in a fallen world. The king has come, 
And because he has brought us into his kingdom, we can live a flourishing life even in a broken place like this earth. We can flourish, we can thrive even here in the midst of suffering. We can be fruit-laden trees in a dry desert. This point is especially made clear in the Beatitudes, which shows us the characteristics of those who, while they suffer under the current hardships of this world, can thrive in the present age through their faith in God's promises and God's King to do as He has said and to bring about the kingdom in the age to come. So that being said, if you're someone here that is struggling in your Christian walk, you're someone that doesn't feel like you're thriving, you're someone that doesn't feel like you're fruitful, you're someone that doesn't feel like you're flourishing, if you feel like you're withering, the Sermon on the Mount is, an in, is intended to show you what a flourishing life looks like in the here and now, in the now and not yet kingdom of God. We see this explicitly in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, which begins by telling us a description of the crowds who were listening in on this great sermon. It says this in chapter 4, verse 25, And great crowds followed him from Galilee, and from the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So we see that he's speaking directly to his disciples, and yet there's these massive crowds listening in at the same time. They hear what Jesus says. They're astonished later by what he teaches. And there's much that can be said about how Jesus is kind of a new Moses, ascending the mountain, sitting down, giving a new covenant law. There's lots of parallels there, but I think... It's also important to understand who makes up this crowd. Who is in the audience that is listening to the Sermon on the Mount? What did Jesus intend to do in giving this sermon? And how does this sermon feed back into Matthew's greater purpose in telling us why, in, in telling us that Jesus preached this sermon? So let's just think for a second. Who were in the crowds? According to Matthew, there were people from Galilee. There were people from the Decapolis. There were people from Jerusalem and all over Judea, all places in which there were thousands and thousands of reminders that Israel was broken and in, in, in exile. These were people who were not living an abundant life in this kingdom. They were people who had constantly been broken because of their own sin. They had overlords that, that oppressed them. They had people who kept them in deep suffering. Galilee for example, as we already have seen in Matthew, is called the land of darkness, the Galilee of Gentiles. It belongs to people that do not normally live in Israel. When the Assyrians invaded in 722 BC, Galilee was hit the hardest. It was left in ruins. It was a salted earth type of mentality, type of warfare, so that the culture would never rise again. You see the same thing in the Decapolis. When the Greeks came marching in, when Alexander the Great came to establish Hellenism in Israel, he set up these cities, the Decapolis, so that he could wipe out Jewish culture altogether and replace it with a Greek culture. And then there's Jerusalem, where Rome asserts its dominance by setting up puppet kings like Herod, who slaughters thousands of babies on a whim, who is constantly paranoid of someone stealing away his throne. They set up legions and thousands and thousands of soldiers, stationing them in neighborhoods to keep the people in, in constant 
uh, mindfulness that they are not their own lords, but they are, they are governed by Caesar, man who claims to be God. And even more than that, so, so it'd be, it's bad enough that these are people that are living in occupied territory, right? This, an equi- a modern-day equivalent would be like, these are the French living in France when the Nazis are occupying the territory, right? If you've seen World War II movies, you know how broken the people are, how sad and dejected and depressed they are. But to make matters even worse, they're, di- they're disease-ridden, lepers, paralytics. They're in pain, demon-oppressed. So they're the broken of the broken. And these are the people that are following Jesus. Each person having their own individual tragedy to match the national tragedy. That's the reality of their day. The Sermon on the Mount was given to broken people with broken stories who were living in a fearful and broken world. They suffered deeply as strangers in their own country. They were still exiles. They had come back to the land, but they never really got that restoration that was prophesied in the Minor Prophets. This is important to keep in mind because the Sermon on the Mount teaches these exiles, suffering people like this, how to thrive, how to flourish, even while living in exile-like conditions. In other words... The sermon teaches broken people like us how to thrive and how to live a thriving, flourishing kingdom life, even knowing that we are strangers and exiles on earth, even knowing that we are those who suffer under things like cancers and diseases and tragedies, and we live in a world that is oppressed by an overlord, someone much worse than Caesar. We live in a world that is riddled with sin, Satan, and rebellion against God. We, I think, can sympathize with the Jews when we long for restoration, right? We long for those things to be a thing of the past. We long for the king to return. We long for the Messiah to come and to rebuild what's been broken. To heal those that have been wounded. To raise the dead. We are longing for that. And until that day comes, we must continue to live as exiles in a foreign land. People who are suffering and oppressed. All the while being faithful to our real citizenship, which is in heaven. Now we do this. We we have our feet, one foot in suffering, one foot in flourishing kingdom life. We do this by living according to the kingdom ethic that's set before us here in the Sermon on the Mount. If we apply these things, if we live according to these things, that is what a flourishing life in exile looks like. This is how to thrive in suffering. The kingdom ethic that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount doesn't tell us how to enter the kingdom. He's not saying, if you do these things, then you will become kingdom citizens. These are things for people who are already in the kingdom. Those who have already entered God's kingdom. Those who are kingdom citizens. The principles laid out in the Sermon on the Mount are given to show the kind of life that the king's people, that's us, Christians who have faith in Christ. This is what a kingdom life looks like. And the eight Beatitudes that we're going to look at today are the first installment of this teaching of what a flourishing kingdom life on earth should look like. 
Now, in addition to teaching how we may live a flourishing kingdom life, Matthew has an even greater purpose in putting it here in Matthew. He's already shown us that Jesus is the son of David who has come. Now he's demonstrating that through Jesus' teaching, he is the authoritative king that Israel has been waiting for. Matthew 5 through 7, that whole purpose is to show and demonstrate that Jesus is not just a normal Israelite leader like they had in the past. He's not, he's not just David. He's not Joshua. He's not Moses. He's someone greater than all of those men. Matthew seven twenty eight through 29 says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the, crowd were, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I mean, throughout the sermon, you hear Jesus saying things like this. You have heard it said, and he quotes something from the law. And then he says, but I say to you. Now, to any careful listener, he's basically saying, here's what the Bible says, and here's what I say. That's bold authority, isn't it? And what he's showing is that he... His words said on the same level as the words of the Pentateuch, as the Torah, as the word of God. He is not just some king. He is the king who speaks the word of God and leads his, peop- leads his people to live faithful lives in the presence of their creator. He is the one, Emmanuel, who has come to set up his reign on earth and to bring back restoration, namely... Not just from an exile, a political exile that the Babylonians started, or the Assyrians started, but from humanity's exile from God. He's come to reverse what Genesis 3 brought about. Jesus is the son of David. The one to whom eternal authority has been given has demonstrated this authority in what he says here in the Sermon on the Mount. So if there's anyone here still wondering who Jesus is, listen to his words And allow his words to show you the authority he carries as the son of God, as the king. Now, all of that is background to the Sermon on the Mount that I think is essential to understanding what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon begins by listing eight characteristics of the king's people. And they're kind of surprising when you think about it. This is a thriving kingdom life, mind you. They are poor in spirit, not rich. Poor in spirit, mournful, meek, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaker, and then often persecuted. He begins by saying that those who have these qualities are blessed. Now the word blessing is confusing to many people because we use it in many different ways. If a man gets a promotion or finds out he's receiving some unexpected inheritance, we call him blessed. God has blessed you. If someone uh, is worried about a cancer scare and the doctor gives them a good prognosis, then they're blessed. God has blessed them. How many times have we used blessing in that way? So we get good things in our life, good things happening. Then God blesses. And to make matters even more complicated, we even use the word when someone sneezes. I've never seen the connection. Bless you. You've proven you've got allergies. So we have this, under, we have this misunderstanding of what blessing even means. Because when the Bible uses the word blesses, it doesn't necessarily insinuate material prosperity. 
It doesn't just insinuate all the good things that are going on. None of these ways speak of the way that Jesus is using the word blessed here in Matthew 5. Now, I don't want to discredit. If you, get a, if you get a promotion, that's great. You get an inheritance, that's great. If you get a good dog, uh, prognosis from the doctor, that's great. All good things and good gifts come from a good God. However, none of those things guarantee your ultimate good. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't just think that God's working just, in, by, just by giving us good things. The way that the Bible uses the word blessing is that you can be blessed even when you're laid off of your job. You can be blessed even when they nail a foreclosure notice to your front door. You can be blessed even when the doctor comes back and says, bad news, it's cancer. The way that the Bible understands blessing has little to do with the way that we use or think of the word blessing in our modern day. Jesus' use of blessing in Matthew 5 parallels the way that the psalmist uses it in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. Psalm 1 describes a man who delights in God's word. He meditates on God's law and avoids transgressing it. Put plainly, this is a man who lives happily under the kingship of God. He has put himself under God's authority, lives with God as king. Now listen to the way that he describes this man. He is a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The blessed man is compared with a fruitful, non-withering tree. He prospers. Now, it doesn't use prospering in the way that the proponents of the prosperity gospel maintain. This isn't, this isn't hey, he prospers, he, he, all of his bank accounts are full, all of his material gains are, 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 are good, and he's healthy, and he's wise. He's, it's not saying any of that. The, the prosperity gospel cheapens verses like this by claiming that God's blessing is only seen in material wealth or only seen in physical health. But the blessing that the psalmist talks about here, and if it's David, he knew better than anyone that blessing and prosperity does not always equate physical well-being. I mean, David is a tree planted by streams of living water, even when he's homeless and living in caves and hiding from Saul. He's a blessed man, even when the whole nation's hunting him down. So it has has nothing to do with the kind of prosperity that we're thinking. Instead, it's thinking about a prosperous relationship with one's God. The best prosperity you could possibly have. To be healthy with God. To be wealthy in God's presence. To have richness in the Lord. Not in your bank account, but in the Lord. It's a prosperity that goes far deeper than any of this. They are truly happy people in God. That's what it means. He prospers in all that he does. In all that he does. What is in all that he does? In all that he does as he drives to the emergency room. In all that he does as he gets another IV pick put into him. In all that he does as he is driven driving to the funeral home to bury a loved one. In all that he does as he continues to suffer in this world, he prospers. 
That's what the psalmist is referring to here. To be blessed in the way Psalm 1 and Matthew 5 describe it means to flourish in life with God. In this light, Jesus offers a way to flourish regardless of one's situation in life. Flourishing has little to do with the hardships that go around us, that happen around us. It has more to do with the state of the heart that trusts in Jesus. Ask the world what you need to flourish, and here's what it will tell you. It will give you a list of things like this. You need comfort. You need money. You need power and influence. You need immediate gratification, immediate happiness to have everything you want at your fingertips. That's what you need to flourish. You need career success. You need a good boss. You need a smiling family. That means that all them kiddos better be smiling their biggest on Christmas Day. Right? That's what you need to flourish. But ask Jesus what it takes to flourish, and he gives you a list that focuses on the heart, not on your surroundings. Flourishing is a soul that acknowledges its own spiritual poverty. Flourishing is a heart that mourns the fall. Flourishing is meekness. Flourishing is hunger and thirst. Wow, that's a weird way to say flourishing, right? You think of starving, but actually in God's paradoxical kingdom, those who hunger and thirst are flourishing because they hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's a desire to show mercy. It's purity. It's peacemaking. It's a joy that survives even in persecution. The world's list of what it means to flourish focuses on what's around you. Jesus' list focuses on what's inside you. A heart that trusts Jesus and has little else is better off, according to the Sermon on the Mount, is, is more healthy, is flourishing, is thriving better than the one that has everything and does not have a Savior. The one who places themselves under Christ the King and lives life the way that he says to is the one who is healthy, is the one who is actually wealthy, spiritually. There's the one who is thriving. These are the people who are doing well. While those who rebel, those who try to set up their own kingdoms, those who try to to compete for the throne, those are the ones that are withering away. We have, according to the Beatitudes, what we need to thrive in Jesus alone. You don't need a healthy family. You don't need happy kids. You don't need lots of money. You have Jesus. And that's the nutrients that your soil needs to let that tree grow and bear fruit. The Beatitudes also remind us of the now and not yet reality in which we live. In one sense, the Beatitudes describe a flourishing that's to come, while in another sense, they describe a a flourishing that already is. This is the weird paradox and tension that we live in as kingdom people. Jesus doesn't say, blessed will they be, or blessed will be the poor in spirit, right? Blessed will be the meek. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Sometimes Jesus speaks of a present reality, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then sometimes he makes allusions to a future promise, for they shall be comforted. So there's this intermingling of a now and not yet, of a present blessing, a a present flourishing, and a future perfect flourishing. And that's the reality that we live in. As kingdom citizens, 
that live in the kingdom that has already dawned, we may flourish in the present world. And the good news of it all is not only do we flourish now, we continue to flourish and flourish better as the day comes. Culminating in the day that Christ comes where we grow and grow and grow and grow and never wither. My friends, withering Christians, dry, zapped, sapped Christians, understand who you are and understand what Christ has done. This does not mean, as we will see, this does not mean that all is happy-go-lucky and you let go and let God. I mean, these are people who mourn, right? These are people who are hungry, for righteousness. They feel the, the hunger pains, right? So, so we're not talking about just being sad. We're not just talking about pretending that you're not broken. We're talking about flourishing in that brokenness, thriving in that desert, fully acknowledging that the heat of suffering is on you, but all the while growing in joy in Christ. This is good news for those of you who lost a loved one this year or last year. Flourishing is available to you in Christ, even when your heart breaks at the graveside. This is good news for tired mothers. Flourishing is available to you even when your baby suffers from colic. This is good news for Nigerian Christians who flourished even while their persecutors slaughtered them. This is good news for cancer patients. You can thrive even when your body withers from chemotherapy. That's the promise of the gospel here. Like the blessed man of Psalm 1, the people of Christ are trees planted by streams of water that produce fruit in due season. They never wither. And that should remind us of the beautiful promise that Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, listen to the beautiful promise, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You may not see restoration, but Paul says that renewal happens inwardly day by day. Every day, Christ's return gets closer. Your spirit's being restored more and more and more and more, even if your body doesn't feel it. And then he goes on to say, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us. Wait a second, light momentary affliction. Paul, you're in chains, man. You're wanted by Caesar himself and by the Jews. There are people in your homeland that want to kill you. That is not a light and momentary affliction. Not according to him. For this light and momentary affliction is doing what? Preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison. We go from flourishing with little to flourishing with much. My friends, the trajectory of a Christian life is one that thrives, not one that dies. One that thrives, not one that withers. One that flowers, one that is fruitful, not one that is barren and dry and joyless. Now, Because blessed describes thriving and flourishing, then the Beatitudes should be seen as the characteristics. These are what 
This is what a thriving life looks like. If you have these eight Beatitudes, you are a thriving, flourishing person, right? Which means that Christians in Guatemala, for example, who suffer, little girls who have been uh, uh, prone to trauma, they can flourish even in such a scarred background. And these are some of these attitudes, these Beatitudes, these are some of the things that Christ has done in us to help us thrive. Now, I think as we read through these Beatitudes, we should be asking ourselves things like this. Am I flourishing or am I withering? Do these things describe me? While it would take probably entire books, I mean, just probably a book on each Beatitude, who knows, to get through the depths of how amazing these are, we're going to go through them in one sermon. I would love to spend eight weeks on each and, and, and do each beatitude. We're not going to do that because we have to get through Matthew at some point. Okay, um, I would like to get to the end before the end actually comes. And so um, we're just going to introduce them very briefly here. My hope is, is that in this brief introduction, you'll go back and read them and study them yourself. It's a great eight. We, if you want to read the Bible better in 2020 and you don't know where to start, here's a good place to start. Read each beatitude for, and, and study on it for eight weeks and, uh, and go through it in your personal time. Now, the first characteristic of someone who is flourishing is that they are poor in spirit. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of, he- kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit describes someone that has a humble evaluation of themselves. These are people who understand their own spiritual poverty and their dependence upon God. The idea is illustrated by Martin Luther, who's, uh, he, who, who spoke these words at his deathbed. Here's what he said. Um, right before his deathbed, if you know the story of Martin Luther, he had rejected this idea that you have to have the Pope's blessing and you have to have the final rites in order to be saved, in order to go into the kingdom of heaven. He believed it was Christ alone, solus Christus, right? Christ alone, by faith alone, right? And so he, he got tested. And, and, and so his friends came to him and they said, are you sure you don't want last rites just in case? Now, I'm Martin Luther... All right, first off, I'm frustrated my friends didn't listen to my sermons. But second off, I might have been tempted just a little bit. What's the harm in just having this little extra assurance? Just add a little bit more to the spiritual piggy bank before I go to heaven. Who knows? Maybe it's the last few cents I need to buy a ticket. Here's what he says. On his dying deathbed, well, that's, that's redundant, but on his deathbed, Weighing this out, here's what he says. We are beggars. This is true. That's poor in spirit. Even with all of his morality, his good deeds, his faithfulness, I mean, this man translated the entire Bible into the German language. First printed Bible ever. Changed the world. Talk about a rich man morally. A rich man Uh, as far as what he had accomplished in this life. And yet, on his deathbed, after accomplishing it all, we are beggars. My friends, do you understand that your righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord? A flourishing life is one that understands that we are beggars before God, but he is a generous giver who lavishes grace and mercy and love on us. We have no personal storehouses of spiritual wealth and righteousness. You have no savings account in heaven. 
Do you realize that? There's no, there's no uh, secondary funds. There's no offshore accounts. There's no nothing that will get you into heaven. You are spiritually broke. You're a beggar in rags. And the only wealth that you can claim to get you into the kingdom, I have Jesus. I have Christ. Christ alone. My friends, it is a topsy-turvy world that the kingdom brings. Those who walk around strutting what all they've done, what all they do, what all they have, are those who are withering. While those who strut around realizing they have nothing that God has not given them are those who are thriving, those who are flourishing. Beggars are the rich men of Christ's kingdom. That's us. In verse 4, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The idea is spoken of all the way back in Isaiah 61. There's a lot of borrowing from the Old Testament here. This is because it's the same God speaking them, right? The God who spoke the Old Testament is the God who is now speaking on the Sermon of the Mount. And so you see a lot of overlap. He borrows from Isaiah 61, which Jesus read in the synagogue at the beginning of his ministry. In the surrounding context... Isaiah 59, 2, laments that Israel's iniquity has resulted in separation from God. The result is going to be an all-sweeping destruction. Israel's going to be in ruins. They're going to be broken. They're going to be in exile. But then Isaiah 60 and 61 follow this devastating news with a hope of restoration. Isaiah 61 speaks of good news to the poor, binding up for the brokenhearted, liberty to the captives, In that day, it says that those who mourn the consequences of judgment, those who mourn under the fall, I think it's a broad speaking of mourning here, right? Someone who has lost a loved one and is mourning death. This applies to them because that is a consequence of the fall. Someone who mourns a disease or mourns cancer, that that can apply to you because it is a consequence of the fall. Those who mourn because of the fall, listen to what it says. (coughs) He will give them... A beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Now, most of us don't know what a headdress is, but if you've ever been to old-style Southern Baptist Church, I'm teaching at Southern Bible uh, Institute and College again this semester. I just love the hats that my African-American sisters wear in the class. I mean, every time they turn, they about whack somebody else out. And it's a, to, it's a symbol of joyfulness to them. It's a symbol of, 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 of we're here to celebrate. Got our best on. So, so just in, in, in plain speech, if, if I were the message writer, right, if you have the message Bible, I would say, it's going to give you a new hat. It's going to say happy on front of it. Okay? And you won't have to be wearing ashes on your head all the time like you're mourning. The oil of gladness will be given instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Not coincidentally, in Isaiah 61, he says they will be like flourishing oak trees planted by the Lord himself. Those who mourn understand that things are not the way they should be. You realize that? There's an acknowledgement in mourning. This is not the way it should be. Healthy mourning goes on to accept the second truth in this too. No one but God can fix it. So we hope in him. Things are not the way they should be. 
Christ can fix it. This beatitude of mourning is a rightfully placed hope in Jesus to make all things right again. It, 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 it requires us to cry now. It requires us to go to gravesides now. It requires us to hurt now. But it's a hurt that then goes on to hope. Now, we don't hope at the bottom of a bottle. We don't hope in uh, the bottom of prescription pills to try to lull ourselves out of our depression, right? We don't hope in more money. We don't hope in toys to distract us. We don't hope in big houses. We don't hope in doctors and hospitals. We hope in Christ. None of those things are bad in and of themselves. It's just not where our hope is. True mourning seeks consolation in Christ only. And the promise is is that those who mourn in such a way will give comfort. Will be given comfort. So, when you turn on your news, I don't care which one it is. It could be red or blue. Who cares? They're both depressing. When we suffer loss, when mass shootings happen... Rumors of war, are we going to go to a war with Iran? Is Russia going to come after us now? Are the Canadians evading? When you hear rumors of war and mass tragedies and all these things that frighten you, we're about to have another economic collapse and another depression's on the horizon and Texas is going to secede. First thing we're going to do is invade California. When you hear these things, you get all up in an anxiety and, and, and think, oh man. You get all up in a fear. When you shed tears of sadness, do you remember that there's a God who wipes away tears? When you see mass atrocities and acts of violence, do you hope in the God who can turn swords in the plowshares and burn soldiers' boots so that there's no more war? Do we mourn? You know, there's too often we just jump into action, don't we? But a beatitude, flourishing in the kingdom, is one that realizes that we can do nothing for our own restoration. We acknowledge we need it, and we acknowledge who gives it. That's the beatitude of mourning. And that's what it means to flourish. If you put your hope in God, you will be comforted. If you put your hope in anything else, you'll be left wanting. Meekness. The next characteristic of those who flourish is meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, I think far too often meekness is misunderstood as passive weakness, right? Oh, they're, a, they're a meek little fella, right? That's, that's how we use it, almost like someone that's shy and in a corner and just doesn't want to talk to anyone. My friends, that's shyness, that's introvertedness, that's not meekness, okay? Meekness is something completely different. The way that Jesus speaks of it is, is, has more to do with patience then it has to do with passivity. It's not being passive. It's an active patience. Consider the overlap between Matthew 5, 5 and Psalm 37, 7 through 11. It's amazing. If you, can just, if you turn to Psalm 37, you can just underline the connections between Matthew 5, 5 and Psalm 37. Here's what Psalm 37 says. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Devices? Have you said that? 
Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. Listen to this. It tends only to evil. Fretting, fear, tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. Now here's the connection. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now, surrounding all this idea of meekness in Psalm 37 is this idea of patience and a warning to not become angrily bitter at the evil around you. My friends, we don't do this often enough. We turn on Fox News and bam, we're mad. Turn on CNN and bam, we're mad. Meekness is patience. The Lord is king. The Lord has made a promise to do away with evil. It will not come in 2020 with the presidential candidate, whoever you're voting for. It doesn't mean be patient until November. It doesn't mean be patient until you get a chance to run. It means be patient until the Lord comes and does exactly what he says to do. Not coincidentally, he promises that those who patiently wait on the Lord, are given peace. If you're someone that's so angry and bitter when you watch the news and you see all this evil around you and you're just so mad, we gotta, we got to vote the right people in, we got to do the right things, we got to push out California, we got to do this, we got to do that. My friends, it tends only toward evil. That's what Psalm says. Fretting only tends toward evil. Whereas trusting in God and waiting on Him leads to abundant peace. Now, we got, we, got, we got to get through this. Wow. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Once again, this beatitude has more to do with longing for a restored relationship with God. The world has fallen, and because of its fall, no human lives naturally in a way that pleases God. The entire world is filled with unrighteousness as mankind continues to seek to be its own God, its own king. Now, those of us who crave for righteousness, acknowledge two things. Again, number one, we do not have it in and of ourselves. A man who has bread and who has his own water is not hungry and is not thirsty. Someone who does not have food and who does not have water on their own is hungry and thirsty. My friends, we hunger for righteousness. We thirst for righteousness because we know we don't have it on our own. Secondly, we acknowledge that God alone can satisfy such a craving. It's very similar to that poor in spirit that we just talked about. Self-righteous people do not see themselves as hungry or thirsty. They're full. I have everything I need. Jesus, that's great. He's a great add-on, right? He's an accessory. But they don't see themselves as someone who's hungry and they, they don't have it in and of themselves. Whereas the topsy-turvy world that we live in because of the kingdom is that those who acknowledge that they're beggars, those who acknowledge they're hungry, those who acknowledge they're thirsty, those who acknowledge that only God can make us righteous, not by works of righteousness of ourselves, but only because Jehovah to scan you, God is my righteousness. Am I satisfied? 
My little filthy rags cannot fill me up, but God himself can. We are hungry and thirsty beggars that need the bread and the water of life to fill us up. Jesus goes on to say, blessed are the merciful, for they'll receive mercy. Now, this is just kind of crazy in our day and age that we tend to think of lacking mercy as just a mere character, character defect. And they're hard on a lot of people. They judge. They're pretty judgmental, but, you know, that's them. My friends, lacking mercy according to Christ is, is a serious infringement against God's revealed will. To lack mercy, to lack kindness, to speak meanly to people. I mean, this is a meanness toward people, right? <laughs> so I've been a pastor for five years, and there's sometimes I'm going to scratch my head. How can we be so mean, you know? It's just, it's just bizarre to me. We're Christians. Micah 6.8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and the word for that is mercy to love mercy and then to walk humbly with god and god's definition what is good of what is right of what will not be judged is someone who has mercy whereas the rest of the bible (coughs) continues to show that those who do not show mercy will be judged without mercy the israelites were to show kindness to the foreigners to the immigrants to the strangers, to the widows, to the poor, to the broken, to those who have to set up ghettos in Israel. They were to show kindness to them. Why? Because God had shown kindness when they were strangers in exile in Egypt. John goes even further. In First John, he says this, that those who have truly experienced the love of Christ will love others. And not just in some fake way, patting them on the back and, hey, I'll pray for you, but I never get around to it. Actual, actual love and mercy for brothers and sisters. If that doesn't top it off, wait till we get to Matthew 18 when Jesus gets to the parable of the unforgiving servant. He's given mercy. He refuses to give mercy. And then he's judged without mercy. My friends, that is a big warning. This is not just a character defect. Show mercy. That's how to thrive in a kingdom surrounded by suffering. Another attribute is having a pure heart. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Corresponds with Psalm 24, 3 through 4, which says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? That's the temple. Who shall ascend to the temple? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. That you have to have a pure heart, in other words, to stand before God. Now, notice Jesus doesn't tell us how we get a pure heart. He just says, those who have a pure heart, see God. Well, there's a problem. Because the rest of Scripture says that we don't have pure hearts. None of us do. And there's nothing that we can do to get a pure heart. You can't wash away the stain of sin with water. So what are we going to do? Well, Jesus provides what he demands. He demands a pure heart to stand before God, and then he gives it by dying. The author of Hebrews is big about this. I think he's thinking back on that promise, the pure in heart shall, shall see God. <clears throat> and then he says that Christ has died and that his blood has cleansed, cleaned, 
our hearts. Why? So that we may now approach God. In other words, my friends, Christ has died. His blood was shed. Your heart has been made pure, not by your own acts, but by his sacrifice, so that now you have the promise. You will see God. Jesus provides the purity he requires for his people. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are called sons of God. God's working to reestablish shalom in the world. He wants the world to be healthy and whole again. He's working to bring it back into a relationship. Those who are his sons imitate their father. The father wants peace. The sons seek peace. My friends, Jesus has shown us all over the gospel that there are sometimes we divide necessarily, especially over gospel issues. Especially over gospel issues. But what always befuddles me is you will not find one passage that says to relish in division. Be careful of wanting to be the devil's advocate. You might actually be his advocate. Be careful of loving to stir the pot. To divide, to draw lines. That's not the characteristic of sons of God. Sons of God relish in peace. They do what Paul says in Romans 12, 18. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Sometimes it doesn't depend on us. Sometimes people stand up and they speak heresy against Jesus. Sometimes people claim that there are other ways to heaven than our Savior. Well, there's no peace to be had. Because the source of our unity is not there. But as far as it depends on you, live in peace. That means sometimes, yes, you can stop from saying what you're about to say. Yes, you can keep your opinion to yourself. Jesus has not given you the spiritual gift of criticizing people. It's not in the list. He's given you the gifts that you need to make peace. Make peace. Now we get to the final characteristic. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As history demonstrates, the world is not friendly to those who desire to live for God. Sometimes pursuing a kingdom life requires your blood. It's rare for us in Ovilla, Texas to see anything like that, but sometimes it happens. But as it's seen in churches all over the world, it is possible to do church, and to be a church, and to be a believer in China or in Nigeria, and to flourish even while everybody else around you hates your God and your Savior and therefore hates you. Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's a strange application, but rejoice and be glad in persecution. Rejoice and be glad in suffering for Jesus' sake. He mingles them together. Hardship for Jesus and joy. They go together here. When the PSB knocks on the door of the house church, Dakaiman, 
You have to open the door. Next thing you know, your pastor's being hauled out in, in handcuffs. And they slap your whole family and your whole church with a fine that you can't pay. Guess what? It's possible to flourish even in that. When you hear the marching of soldiers' boots, and they come and drag out ten of your beloved brothers and sisters, and they behead them in front of you while recording it to send it to the rest of the world, it's possible to flourish even in that. My friends, Jesus says rejoice and be glad in persecution. That's the, that's the hardest kind of suffering. If we, can, if we can endure, enjoy the hardest kind of suffering, all the other sufferings should be included, right? I can deal with a bad boss and flourish. I can deal with gossip and flourish. I can deal with persecution and flourish. When we suffer for righteousness' sake, we stand in a great cloud of witnesses who acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth who desired a better country, a heavenly one. Now, my friends, we will end on this point. We've come to the end of the Beatitudes, and so we must not forget how we have been made able to flourish in the now and not yet reality of Christ's kingdom. We are able to thrive as exiles and sojourners, as people who do not belong in this world. Why? Because Jesus died for us. It's a truth we take granted for granted for far too often. Our great Savior died and he won your citizenship into the kingdom of heaven. It was by his blood that you've been cleansed. You may now draw near. He flourished in suffering. He died and he rose again, guaranteeing your resurrection. And now you may flourish as citizens of of the kingdom. My friends, I love the church. You want to know why? Because in here, I am not American. Yes, I'm American. I pay my taxes and I get all the rights due to Americans. But this is an embassy of the kingdom. I am a citizen of a heavenly country. I have a king that doesn't belong to this world. I live by his law. And that's the truest thing about me. And because of that, I can flourish. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. It doesn't matter who's in the parliaments. It doesn't matter what laws they pass. I am a tree planted by streams of living water because the water doesn't come from America. It doesn't come from the kingdoms of men. It comes from the kingdom of God and the water that has been planted in my heart by Jesus, the water of life himself. Let it go parched. Let it dry up. Let it grow barren. Ten years from now, 20 years from now, 60 years from now, on my deathbed, I'll be producing even more fruit because Jesus has done what he has done on the cross and at the tomb for us. Therefore, as we take up these eight Beatitudes, run with endurance the race that is set before you, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, where, by the way, your reservation, your seat, awaits you when Christ returns. And for all eternity, abundant kindness lavished upon God's children. 
who flourish forever. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for healthy, flourishing Christians. I pray for people who have broken bodies, empty bank accounts, bad jobs, layoffs, hardships, hurt marriages. And I pray for them to thrive. I pray, Lord, that Grace Church will be filled with trees planted in the middle of a desert world. That when people look at us, they scratch their head and wonder how in the world a fruit tree ended up in the middle of a dry desert. And where in the world is the source of our growth? Where does our nutrients and our water come from? How is it that we can turn hardship and hot hardship like the scorching sun into the means by which we produce flourishing fruit? And at that point, I pray that they see Jesus, the vine, the water, the bread from heaven, the shepherd, the one who bore fruit in his life so that we may now bear fruit for all eternity. God, please be with us as we suffer and help us thrive. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.